Before I move into my Dharma talk this evening, I wanted to make one announcement. Um, Some of you might be aware that tonight in the U.S. is election night. And uh, in light of that, tomorrow morning, Kyle will be putting up in the administration building, so not in the, the main building here, over in the office building there on the, the bulletin board there where, where you sometimes put uh, rideshare notes. There'll be a piece of paper there that you can fold up and see either maybe the results of the election or maybe where the election is at. Um, so you can go over there and take a look at that. Also, if there's another yogi around you, if you could just be mindful of that, some people might not want to know. Also, if as a result of the election outcome, you'll be deciding to move to Canada, (laughs) Kyle can help you with that as well. (laughs) And of course, if you live in Canada or another country, you might want to just, and you have an extra room, there might be people wanting to uh, contact you, so you could maybe even put a note on the board. For, for, those, for those U.S. citizens fleeing, fleeing the country. And I just, I want to acknowledge, uh, even on retreat, given, you know, how this year has gone, some of you might feel a whole stirring of emotions around today and around this election, especially if you're um, uh, a U.S. citizen. And some of you, you know, might feel uh, not so much around this, might not even have crossed your radar. So I just want to acknowledge the full range of how this might be moving through your system, Um, either how it has been moving through your system or how it's moving through your system today. And I, I want to point out that I, I think, I feel that election season is, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to learn to navigate this uncertain world that we're thrown into. And really when it comes down to it, it's not just election day, every day, even every day on retreat is such a rich day to navigate, you know, the uncertainty of what we're thrown into. Whether it be the uncertainty of the election or tonight or tomorrow or next week, navigating that. And tonight, that's what I'd like to do is I'd like to share with you some reflections on on this topic of how do you navigate uncertainty, the uncertainty that lies ahead of us? How do you do that? how to figure this out. The first thing I wanna mention about this is, um, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I so don't know how to navigate that world. And I I don't know for a very particular reason because I don't know, I can never be certain about the next moment. 
about the future. And yet, I have a mind that might be like your mind. I have a mind that really wants to know, wants to figure it out. But I can't because I don't know what the next moment holds. And I can notice this impulse of the mind of wanting to always try to figure that out, how to navigate that world ahead of me of uncertainty. Really, in order to start to feel more certain, there's this wanting to feel more certain, to have it down for what's next. And so I want to point out that tomorrow, tomorrow is not going to bring any more certainty into your life. Maybe, maybe there'll be more certainty around one thing, but even that, who knows? And you might notice in yourself that same kind of impulse of wanting some kind of certainty at times. But the next moment, the next unfolding moment is going to have just as much uncertainty. So I want to point out in light of this, the problem isn't being thrown into a world that, that confronts us with so much uncertainty. It's more about uh, how does the mind relate to that? And I think this is what the Buddha was uh, so curious about. How is the mind relating to experience? And I, I want to be just a bit more precise about this in terms of how I'm setting it up for, for tonight. It's really this curiosity of how the mind is relating to what might happen in the next moment. Because that's how I'm confronted so often with uncertainty is what I'm thinking might happen in the next moment or the next day or the next week or the next year. That's what the mind so often is contending with. And I want to share with you a, a quote from that's attributed to Bodhidharma, the, who is this um, part mythic, part historical figure who is said to have brought uh, Buddhism from uh, uh, India into China. And he says, Mind is like the wood or stone from which a person carves an image. And if they carve a dragon or a tiger and seeing it, they feel fear. They are like an unwise person creating a picture of hell and then afraid to face it. Yet if they do not fear it, then their unnecessary thoughts will, will simply vanish. Part of the mind produces sight, sound, taste, odor, and sense. And from them arises greed, anger, and, and delusion with all of their accompanying likes and dislikes. This is how it happens. 
the, the mind carves, it carves out some kind of dragon or tiger or some other kind of creature that can be so often look so frightening. This is, this is really where the dilemma is, how the mind's creating this. As I think many of you know how Mark Twain puts it, I'm, I'm an old man and I've known a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. Here it is, the mind, the mind creating these dragons and these tigers. And then conjuring up what might happen next with these creatures. And as I mentioned, your mind might be, be like mine. It wants to figure out what these creatures are going to do, what they're going to do next, these dragons and these tigers that are created by the mind, about what might happen in the next moment, the next day, the next week, or the next year. And I want to point out that this impulse of the mind isn't entirely unskillful or unwholesome. This kind of planning mind. Like, I feel like I owe my life to this mind and the minds of other human beings that are trying to figure out to have certainty about an uncertain world. For example, last year I was riding my mountain bike in Flagstaff, Arizona, and I was going down this trail and right next to the trail, right on the edge of the trail, there was a small tree. And that small tree, as I rode past it, is right on the trail, clipped my handlebar. And as a result of clipping my handlebar, it jerked the, um, the wheel and the handlebars dramatically in a way that I, 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 in an instant, I tumbled over on my bike. And it was a huge rocky path. And I hit the ground so hard. What I remember was, I think I first hit my head and then my hand. And I remember after getting up and I was kind of, I, you know, I was clipped into my bike so my bike was kind of on top of me. And I remember getting up and I was in pain but I felt so much joy because I was wearing a helmet. And it was like, wow, I am so happy there are human minds that plan about uncertain things try to figure out things that might happen in this uncertain world. And as a result of that, voila, here I am. <laughs> what a cool thing. Those seat belts and airbags in our world, washing our hands. <laughs> a mind that tries to figure out what might happen next as a way of navigating uncertainty. We utilize it on this path. In some ways, my protection is my sila, my ethics. When I have that seat belt in place or those airbags, it helps so much navigating whatever's next. But, but what I found so important is to remember, and this is so tricky to remember, at least 
for my mind, that I definitively don't know what's going to happen next. And I find this is, is an essential piece for navigating uncertainty. A Zen story about this. This is about the Zen master Fayan before he was a Zen master. He actually was the founder of one of uh, uh, the Fayan school of, of Zen in China. And he was on pilgrimage and he was traveling uh, from temple to temple. And he came by way of um, a hermitage, uh, uh, the Dizong monastery. And, and the Zen master Dizong came out and asked Fayan, uh, where are you going? And Fayan said, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pilgrimage, wherever my feet take me. And then Dizong, being a good Zen master, presses further. <laughs> and he says, well, what do you expel, expect from pilgrimage? And Fayan says, I don't know. And Dizong replied, ah, ah, not knowing is most intimate. When I can rest in not knowing, there's a kind of intimacy with what's going on right now. I can utilize the planning mind, but I'm not as hooked by it. A kind of spiritual intimacy can arise. And I want to point out, I feel that Fayan's not knowing, this not knowing that he's describing, is not the not knowing of ignorance, but rather the not knowing of openness. Of openness to experience, an openness to the uncertain world that we're thrown into. And so I'm hoping you're hearing a little bit of the refinement now that it's, again, as I was saying earlier, the planning mind isn't the problem. The mind that tries to think about the future isn't so much the problem. What I notice is it becomes the problem when it gets entangled with a kind of obsessive or unhelpful fear. Really, this is the heart of what I want to share with you is how to navigate fear, because I think this is what it comes down to so often. Around things like elections or difficulties with others in our life, or the challenges even sometimes on retreat, the arising of fear. The fear of what might happen next. And you might notice that in some ways that is the nature of fear. Maybe not all, all fear, but most fear is it's a fear of what might happen next. Even if I'm in pain, I'm worried or fearful of what might happen next with that pain. And what can happen 
for some of us is that this quality, the state of mind of fear and worry can begin to become an unskillful, habitual way of navigating this uncertain world. What I notice is it's like that state of mind has this narrative and it's saying, you know, if you want to stay safe, you need to keep on worrying all the time. You need to keep up the fear to be a bit more alert, just, just in case. Like it wants to figure out all of the dragons, all of the tigers that might come and arise and figure out all of their behaviors, just in case. So it needs to stay, it needs to stay on guard. And sometimes you might even feel this on retreat, the mind begins to settle, and then there's a part of the mind and body that says, whoa, I don't know if I wanna completely do that, because then I might let down my guard. I might stop worrying, and then things might get really dangerous. And it can be this underlying sense of wanting to be in control. What I notice in my life is that sometimes fear arises when what hits my heart is the realization that I'm really not in control and I really want to be in control. And then there's this kind of managing in some kind of way. Again, maybe around the election, around others, around ourselves, around our bodies. remember recently feeling this, and this was around uh, a person that's close to me in my life. And you might know how it is when there's someone close to you in your life. At least for me, I wish the best for them. But this person, I became so afraid of what might become of their life because of their behaviors. It worries me, I wanna figure out a way of intervening, helping to make their life better somehow. I'm hoping, I'm so hoping that their life will turn out in a different way. And you might hear another part of the cycle around fear that can happen is this unskillful hope. I'm just hoping for something better for that person. Sometimes it's our own life, right? We're confronted with some challenge in our own life, whether it be emotional or health or situational. The desperate hope, the desperate fear, and it can be such a cycle. Yet what I notice if I come back to really not knowing, I really don't know. I really don't know what to do. I really wanna figure it out, but I don't know. 
And then an intimacy can begin to arise with that experience. And for me, I just want to point out, it's not always a pleasant experience. Because <laughs> so often when I'm trying to figure out so obsessively or there's this cycle of hope and fear, sometimes what's underneath it is the feeling of my heart being broken. Do you know that feeling? You invest your heart in something or in some kind of outcome. And who wants to feel the break of that? But that's what needs to be touched sometimes to be felt, the heartbreak, the lack of control. And then from there, sometimes, I can see what can emerge either in my relationship to another life or my own life. At least an opening to begin to influence, but not control. So you might be able to relate to this, to what your mind does around others in your life, around your own life. around health issues, around situational issues, around life on retreat, around the election. Fear and sometimes underneath it, a protecting from heartbreak. And when I sense into that, what I begin to realize sometimes about the worry and fear that arises in this heart and mind, the unskillful worry and fear, is that so much of it is centered around me. <laughs> Bringing to mind the fears that arise for you. Maybe the fear of being rejected or misunderstood or not being accepted the fear of certain emotions that might disturb me. The sadness, the anger, the confusion, the loneliness, or even fear itself. Have you ever noticed how convincing that worry and fear can be? It's amazing. That kind of unskillful, habitual way of being. And the, re the reason I see that it can be so convincing is got it's, it's got such a good argument. It's got a really good argument that I always get hooked by. Which is because it knows that practically anything can happen in the next moment. And sometimes that feels like a really convincing reason to keep on worrying and being afraid. Does anyone else get hooked by that reason? <laughs> it's a good one. And maybe like me, you've noticed that it comes at a huge cost. 
a huge class to how I live my life and how I approach the spiritual practice. In some ways I, th- I think fear can be seen as the heart of the matter. Actually, it's interesting in uh, the Vasudhi Magga, which is a commentary to the Pali discourses that was written by Buddhaghosa. There's one place, a very brief place, where he renders the Four Noble Truths in a very interesting way. This is the way he breaks it down. The first Noble Truth, there is fear. The second Noble Truth, there is the cause of fear. The third noble truth, there is the freedom from fear. And the fourth noble truth, there is the means to attain that freedom from fear. It's compelling. That's why I totally dig Fayan and his answer. That he just doesn't know. And when I imagine Fayan on his pilgrimage and the Zen master Dizong asks him uh, what he expects from his pilgrimage, I think he's just being honest. I think he just has no clue what he's gonna get from his pilgrimage. So he's not trying to be like all Zen-like and everything. It's just somebody asks him a question that he doesn't know the answer to. So he says, I don't know. And his mind's just that simple about it. When I imagine him, I, I see that there's, it takes a kind of confidence not to know in that way. He's not worried about living in an uncertain world. He's not using fear and worry as a way of creating some false sense of safety. And this huge cost doesn't happen only in our minds. Again, I wanna share with you a quote that I've been sharing uh, in, in a few past talks from Krishnamurti. I'm saying, if you don't know how your mind reacts, your mind is not aware of its own activities. You will never find out what society is. You may read books on sociology, study social sciences, but if you don't know how your own mind works, you cannot actually understand understand what society is because your mind is a part of society. It is society. Your reactions, your beliefs, the clothes you wear, the things you do and don't do and what you think, society is made up of all of this. It is the replica of what is going on in your own mind. That worry and fear, if it was only in our own minds, but it's the society that we live in too. Society is the mind, the mind is society. 
And I think it's important to point this out just to connect this practice with the larger picture of things. There can be such a mantra of fear, at least, again, I apologize, I'm going to talk about the United States in some kind of way because this is what I know about. That mantra of fear being, I can never be safe enough. The U.S. leads the world in military spending. The U.S. military budget is basically the size of the next top seven military budgets found in the world. We can never be safe enough. The U.S. incarcerates a larger proportion of its population than any other country does. And this fear of the quote-unquote other in this country has racial and socioeconomic dimensions that shows how destructive fear can be when we're always operating from a place of never safe enough. I need to keep on worrying and being afraid just in case. And to point out, this kind of fear has determined policy. For example, during World War II, right after Pearl Harbor, there was, some of you might remember, the creation of Japanese internment camps. For those of you who don't know, these Japanese um, internment camps, it was the act of moving Japanese Americans into camps and confining them, them there out of really an irrational fear. And finally, in, in 1983, there was a commission on this that finally concluded about these camps that they were a result of, quote, racial prejudice, war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. You'd say this is the kind of fear that subverts compassion, which is the most tragic of fears. And I point this out to point out the power of being with and learning to navigate fear. It has this potential of impacting not only our own lives, but the society that we find ourselves in. What a beautiful thing to offer to the world that we live in. So what's the way forward with navigating fear? Again, Krishnamurti, what is needed rather than running away or controlling or suppressing or any other resistance is understanding fear. That means watch it, learn about it, come directly into contact with it. 
We are to learn about fear, not how to escape from it. To not know and to become intimate with the arising of this state of mind. And again, I, I want to acknowledge the complexity around this topic. Because I feel that, yes, there is a place for skillful fear. Just as there is a, the, in a way that I'm so grateful for that bike helmet, I'm so grateful for a kind of physiology that can get afraid. There's a place for fear that's really important. Another story. When I was young, I was visiting a relative who lived in Montana, right outside the, the border of Yellowstone National Park. He was a, a cousin of my mother's who used to live in, who used to work at the, at the park. And we were out on the Yellowstone River, way kind of in the back country. And as we were hanging out there, there was this, there was a number of us, this grizzly bear that saw us from a distance. And it started booking, not walking, booking, really running towards us. It was really good to have fear arise <laughs> in the mind and body so that we could run up, so we could climb up these trees, which was uh, for that particular uh, situation, the perfect thing. <laughs> I'm so happy to be a mammal that has a threat response that can, can respond to threat in that way. So I want to point out that, that I feel that the practice isn't so much uh, trying to stop being a mammal, but not getting hooked by the unskillful or the, the, the ways that fear can, can ruin our lives rather than support our lives. And even on the, this, this path, sometimes you could say there's a, a place for fear or, or, or ways that we have to go through that. You know, in, in one place, this is... Um, in the connected discourses where the Buddha is likened to a lion who frightens with the teachings of the Dhamma, who gives a kind of spiritual urgency for the predicament that we're in. So again, back to the importance of understanding fear, which means to watch it, learn about it, come directly in contact with it. And to me, it's this, this practice of, can you open up and begin to experience fear? To really slow down with it, to get to know it. What is fear itself like? In a sutta, I think, I think sometimes it's translated uh, the fear and dread sutta. 
which I have, uh, I think I quoted maybe in, in a talk a few nights ago, a few weeks ago. And in this, this discourse you hear uh, the Buddha talking about on his way to awakening, uh, navigating fear and terror. And this is how he, he navigates it. He, he says, what if I, in whatever state I'm in, when fear and terror come to me, were to um, be with that fear and terror in that very state? So for example, when fear and terror came to me, while I was walking back and forth, I would not stand or sit or lie down. I would keep walking back and forth until I had overcome that fear and terror. When fear and terror came to me while I was standing, I would not walk or sit or lie down. I would keep on standing until I had overcome that fear and terror. And when fear and terror came to me while I was sitting, I would not lie down or stand up or walk. I would keep sitting until I had overcome that fear and terror. And when fear and terror came to me while I was lying down, I would not sit up or stand or walk. I would keep lying down until I had overcome that fear and terror. Do you hear that deep commitment to really be with fear as it's arising? And what I realize in order to be with fear in that way, what I need is I need courage. As Martin Luther King says, he says, we must, must build dikes of courage to hold back the flood of fear. Courage is the wholesome quality that allows me to touch, to become intimate with fear. So Maya, Maya Angelou um, puts it well in this uh, commencement speech she'd given a number of years ago. It's interesting what she says about it. She says, courage is the most of all the virtues. Because without courage, you cannot practice any other virtue consistently. You can be anything erratically, kind, true, generous, fair, merciful, just any of those things occasionally. But to be that thing time after time demands that you have courage. And I think that you're not born with courage. I don't believe that. I think you are born with the ability to develop courage. If you wanted to pick up a hundred pound weight, unless you're a bodybuilder or something, you wouldn't just go out and try to pick it up. You develop. You start by picking up five pounds and then 10, 20, 30, 50. And then finally, you'd be able to pick up that hundred pound weight. So here's this habit that I'm called upon to cultivate, this habit of courage. So we were speaking about this over lunch, which I appreciated. <laughs> that much of this practice is cultivating certain habits. Can we cultivate the habit of being courageous? How do I do that? When I come face to face with fear to see that as really an opportunity to cultivate this courage.
And I feel that meditation is such a, 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 an ideal place to touch that. I remember one time I was, uh, I guess it was about uh, a little over 10 years ago, I was teaching in a community that was, I'd maybe taught there maybe for three or four years, so I was relatively new to this community. And they had asked me to do a public um, uh, public talk for the, the town that I was teaching in. And they asked me to do the public talk in a church where I was going to be up on, the, what do you call it, the diocese, you know, overlooking everyone. And you know, I didn't really think about it, so I thought, great, cool, yeah, whatever, whatever works, whatever works for you works for me. <laughs> But not only that, not only was I going to be in a church, my parents were going to be there. And my parents had never heard me give a Dharma talk before. <laughs> um, and I didn't think of it. I thought, oh, cool, great. My folks are here. So I got up there to give this talk. I think I was going to talk about the Four Noble Truths. And I started to, to talk and both looking over people from up above in a church and then seeing my parents just because I was in a different place, I completely froze with fear. <laughs> Which wasn't the most helpful thing for talking about the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> but the cool thing about it was, I think the best thing about teaching meditation is that all I did is I just quickly went to, and now we're just gonna do some sitting meditation. <laughs> which was perfect because I had the perfect container to be with fear. I could take as long as I wanted, five minutes, 10 minutes. They didn't know what was going on. (laughs) (laughs) And it was so wonderful just to have that space. And it wasn't like I was trying to get quote unquote over the fear. I just had to get comfortable with being afraid. And then what I noticed when I allowed myself to be shaky, then I could be in that space in a different way. So I think in the same way, this is what's needed is we we have this way of when we can slow down and simply allow ourselves to feel that. That's what builds the courage. And I think also what's so helpful for me around worry and fear is making sure that I name it. Because often there can be an agitation that's happening in my experience and I'm not quite exactly sure what's going on. But once I get that word worry or fear down, it's like it, it brings it into my capacity to be present with it. You see these wonderful stories of the Buddha, for example, in the connected discourses, the, the Mara Samyutta, where... Again, the uh, Mara is, uh, is attempting to scare the Buddha, to, to make the hairs on his body stand up. So Mara comes in the form of a cobra or a bull elephant to try to scare the Buddha. And it's the same thing that happens in these stories where all that happens is, is the Buddha sees Mara for Mara. Oh, Mara, I see you. That's all it is, to name exactly what's going on. Not to be hooked by the dragon or the tiger, but to see it for what it is. 
And then in the scene, what I find really helpful is I need to separate the object from the experience of the fear. So what I mean by that is I try to turn my attention to the experience of fear itself. And what does it feel like in my body? Oh, it feels just like this. Interesting. There's maybe a shakiness or a fluttering that's happening. Can I feel into that? And this can be really helpful uh, around, sometimes what I notice can happen with fear is there's a a fear of the fear, being afraid of touching into the fear. And this is where I find the bodily aspect is so helpful. And I remind myself, oh, this is just sensation. Oh, interesting. These are just sensations. And noticing it with the naming as well, that it's just a mindset, it's not me, it's just an arising. And then I simply feel it, I open to it so that I can begin to know it. And what's so important for me is this opening too. And I I, I think one image that I find helpful, I I wanna share with you, this comes from a a poem by Jane Hirschfield. Well, she gives this image of a water, of water and how it responds. In some ways she's talking about this previous line where she talks about this, this still heart that refuses nothing. And her aspiration, she says, I I want the way the water sees without eyes, hears without ears, shivers without will or fear at the gentlest touch. I want this way it, it accepts the cold moonlight and lets it pass the way it lets all of it pass without judgment or comment. I want the way the water sees without eyes, hears without ears, shivers without will or fear at the gentlest touch. I want the way it accepts the cold moonlight and lets it pass the way it lets all of it pass without judgment or comment. So when fear comes or those sensations that we associate with fear, can I allow just the whole system to shiver with that, just at the gentlest touch of that? And to let it pass without judgment or comment. So may our exploration of fear lead to the liberation of of all beings. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.